Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. I missed you all. Five days off is too many, but I hope your Thanksgiving was a good one. We are focusing on our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, very special guest, Dinesh D'Souza. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, this is anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. It's totally free. Welcome to our People in News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with Dinesh D'Souza. Dinesh Joseph D'Souza is a best-selling author and award-winning filmmaker. His political documentaries, 2016 Obama's America and America, Imagine a World Without Her, are among the highest-grossing political films of all time. An immigrant who grew up in Mumbai, India, Dinesh came to the United States in 1978 as an exchange student. He attended Dartmouth College, graduating Phi Beta Kappa. He was a domestic policy analyst at the Reagan White House and also a scholar at think tanks such as the American Enterprise Institute and the Hoover Institution at Stanford. Dinesh has written nearly 20 books and made six documentaries and one feature film. Um, that's changed, actually. He teamed up with his wife, Debbie, to produce a daily podcast, which debuted January of 2021 and is part of the Salem Podcast Network. In the spring of 2022, Dinesh Media, along with True the Vote, exposed the truth about the 2020 election with the movie 2000 Mules. This fall, he released another timely documentary called Police State. It would be difficult, if not impossible, for any free-thinking person to watch Police State and not conclude that our country is on the precipice of a complete and unrecoverable national apocalypse and the permanent loss of our nation as we know it, said Michael Clark of the Epoch Times. Mr. D'Souza, how are you today? I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, glad to be with you. I'm so excited that you're here. Uh, thanks for talking to us today, um, and thanks for spending time with us. You've written seven books um, to movies, uh, Obama's America 2012, uh, that one had consequences. We'll talk about, hopefully, uh, America 2014, Hillary's America 2016, Death of a Nation 2018, Trump Card 2020, 2000 Mules 2022, and now Police State 2023. One every two years for a decade. Congratulations for that. You are tireless. Uh, I've seen them all, including the new one. Uh, so here is my question. I always said I'd ask you, given the chance. All right. First one. You were born in Mumbai. They don't have a First Amendment in India. Had you stayed and lived out your life in India, you wouldn't have been able to speak these truths through movies and all the speaking engagements you've had, right? So America was the shining city on the hill and 100% totally because we had a constitution based on liberty, life, and the pursuit of happiness, mostly the second one, liberty, well, the first one there, and not a caste system like in India or the British Empire. You came here legally and through the immigration system New arrivals aren't doing that in the millions. They don't have to vaccinate, don't have to earn a lifetime of income to get Social Security or Medicare. Okay, a lot. You did time for exercising what was the America's Americans' God-given right to free speech. Now your movie, Police State, shines the light on it on the big screen. What happened to this America where lawmakers and police authorities swear on a, an oath to the Constitution on a Bible where our First Amendment, Second Amendment, all of them are being infringed. 
Wow, that's <laughs> there's a lot there, and uh, I'll try just to zoom in and directly, uh, you know, answer the question, which is what happened to the America I came to, you know, a generation or two generations ago, and how did we end up uh, on the edge of a, uh, you know, the kind of repressive society that we never thought we would uh, become? I think the answer to that is that um, the uh, the constitutional arrangements that protect our freedoms uh, work because of a certain balance of power uh, between various elements in our society. In other words, what I'm saying is that a paper document cannot ultimately protect your rights because all you have to do to get beyond the Constitution is to ignore the document or interpret it in such a way that it doesn't mean what it explicitly says. Uh, just read it differently, so to speak, or claim that there are <laughs> situational exceptions to the clear language of the document. And uh, so the founders really understood that our liberty doesn't come exclusively from enumerating freedoms like, oh, you have a right to this, you have a right to that, um, that just doing that is not going to protect anybody's freedom. And uh, so I think what's happened in America is that We've sort of forgotten that. And one party, the left, uh, the Democrats, has become gangsterized, by which I mean it is willing to use brutal instruments of power against the other party. And the other party, instead of fighting back and fighting back in the same uh, language of power that is being used by the Democrats, the other party invokes the Constitution. Hey, I have a right to this. I have a right to that. And the left goes, well, you don't have any rights that the courts don't recognize. You don't have any rights that uh, that you can enforce yourself. So merely quoting the Constitution, appealing to the Constitution is kind of useless when we are just going to do this to you uh, and you can recite the Constitution as we put, you know, our foot on your throat. Wow. Um, okay. <laughs> So you started out, you worked with Ronald Reagan way back in 1988, uh, when I was a junior in high school, looking forward to all of these wonderful rights and capitalism and, and a society to come into. So lucky you to work with the man. Uh, what impressions did he leave you with that you're probably wishing we still had to this day? Yeah, Reagan's America was a completely different place than we have today. And I think that um, part of what made it appealing is, is it was not an America free of conflict, but the conflict, the large conflict was external. It was between basically the free West and the Soviet empire. And so there were domestic differences, but it was kind of understood that domestically, although we squabble about this and we squabble about that, we are on the same team. We are all Americans. And so uh, there was a certain modest camaraderie. I don't want to exaggerate it because there were some fairly acrimonious political debates and I, I wouldn't downplay those. But I think the difference today is that our main difference is internal. Um, and and so the, the greatest enemies of the conservatives, the Republicans and the patriots and the Christians do not come from abroad. They come from the left because it is the left that is threatening our basic liberties. Xi Jinping isn't threatening them. The Iranians aren't threatening them. Biden is. So I think that 
we are now in a situation much more closely resembling 1858, 1859. In other words, we have to go back to the Civil War as a a time in America when the great differences were internal and not external. And that's the difference between us now and the Reagan era. Wow. Okay. That's very well said. Um, This time is different, they would say. And so the media has never been this bad. Uh, The politicians never were so obviously a majority of tyrants. You know, you were talking about maybe some congeniality between Reagan and Tip O'Neill, who was Speaker of the House, which probably wasn't as congenial as it looked on TV. Uh, We had Ted Kennedy running over to Russia to tell the Soviets he'd work with them to help overthrow Reagan, which we didn't find out till years later in the history book. So anyway, the media, they are always a, a minority and hidden away in dark corners. They were the spying, the censorship, the emergency powers like the McCarthy era, not California Kevin, but Joe McCarthy with just a few Hollywood types. But the long march through the institution seems to be near the goal line, less so the starting gate. How do you see it? And how do we put the communist genie back in the bottle? Well, it's not going to be that easy. And it's certainly not going to be something that can be done in one shot. Uh, True, if we win the 2024 election, which is an if, there is a, you know, you have the power in the executive branch to uh, reform, renovate, remake some of the police agencies of the government. Uh, that even won't be easy because a lot of the rot and the corruption has burrowed its way down. And so even if you're in charge of the country, you you need to ha- be, have a very surgical knowledge of how to be able to get into these bureaucracies and sort of root out the bad guys. So that's, and even once you've done all that, uh, a lot of the repressive institutions that we're dealing with, some of them are not even in the government. You have a censorship, for example, being carried out by digital platforms in conjunction with elements of academia, uh, sometimes in conjunction with uh, uh, very powerful and well-funded nonprofits uh, that act as middlemen between the government and the digital platforms. Uh, so some of this has to be fixed by the court. Some of this has to be fixed by the legislature, some of it by a uh, conservative control of the executive branch. Some of it can be can be done. There are things that can be done at the state level by by governors, uh, by uh, secretaries of state, by uh, DAs, uh, Republican district attorneys. So this is a it's been a a war on all fronts for the left, and it, it would need to be a war on all fronts from our side as well. One of the things you didn't mention is obviously daylight being the best disinfectant, exposing this. And that's exactly what your movies do. 2000 Mules was a couple of years ago. Now you have police state. Are you seeing any movements based on your disclosures in your films, exercising your First Amendment right to free speech with politicians and legislatures? And now we have a Republican majority, even though it's thin in the House, they do control all of the committees, all of the subpoena power, all of the, you know, Jim Jordans of the world, Comers of the world. Do you see anything that is moving the needle in that direction based on your films, people you've had to work with to get this done? You had some of these very names in your movie. Yeah, the films have a they they do something very valuable, which is they put things out there that um, that give a whole new landscape, a whole new perspective, a whole new disclosure 
that is very difficult to for anyone who's seen the film to get it out of their mind uh, and also for them not to be persuaded, if not by every detail, then by the sort of larger picture that's being presented. So I think, for example, anyone who sees 2000 Mules and watches it with an open mind will go, something went deeply wrong in the 2020 election. It was emphatically not the most secure election in U.S. history. Now, they might want to argue with us about certain other things in the film, but but that conclusion alone is very important because it undercuts a whole regime of lies that we've been hearing for two years nonstop coming out of so many official agencies of the government, supported by so many Republicans from Liz Cheney to Bill Barr. So we, we by we, we, I mean our small six man, you know, film company is going up against an incredibly powerful juggernaut. And it's also probably fair to say we're doing it with very little help from our own side. Um, and by that, I mean, uh, we um, we get very we get no help from the Republican National Committee. We find that so many Republicans are afraid of these topics. They're like, I'm having a screening of 2000 meals in Washington, D.C. Oh, Dinesh, I'm sorry, I'm out of town. I'm not going to be able to make it. Uh, it's not that they don't they can't make it. They don't want to see the film because and I'm talking not about so-called rhinos. I'm, I'm talking about pretty hardcore Republicans because they know that if they see the film, they can't unsee it. And then they're going to have to do something about it. And they don't really want to do that because they don't want to be called a conspiracy theorist and they're scared of the media. And so it is a I will have to say that I think the films do a great deal. And yet, at some level, it is frustrating to see that even people who are on our side, who are in a position to do some things about the stuff that the films are disclosing, they're afraid to move. Hmm. You may have to stop calling them rhinos and start calling them ostriches and just put their heads in the sand and don't want to look. And you said afraid of the media. That is a scary subject because obviously a movie is technically in the media, especially when it's reported on. And so I don't see a lot of Fox News, Newsmax, uh, any of the so-called uh, conservative news outlets pumping it up and and making the case where you would actually have like a uh, Dan Rather with a microphone in their face trying to get them to do something on this because you did the work. You did the homework and said, here's my investigative report stretched out in a movie. In this case, there's a little bit of drama with uh, uh, Nick Searcy, but there's also the, the facts. And just like with 2000 Mules, you have your satellite infrared uh, images Yet, come 2024, which is less than a month away, a little more than a month away, nothing's changed. They, they're, they're primed for exactly the same thing again, right? Well, I mean, um, you know, when you talk about the media, for years, Fox News was kind of our only outpost to be able to disseminate information pretty widely. And then Fox News itself became... I don't know if discombobulated is the right word. I don't know if this was a issue of succession between Rupert Murdoch and his sons. But the simple truth of it is that Fox News is now itself terrified of the key topics that I've covered, at least in my later work. In other words, 2000, for example, 2000 Meals was never mentioned on Fox News. Uh, they, they, literally, they literally ordered their hosts not to discuss it. Um, and, uh, and, and so... Um, as a result, the one time I think Carrie Lake mentioned 2000 meals on Fox News, the host looked like she was she had turned white. You know, she turned pale because I think she realized some 
you know, edict from above was being violated. Uh, and then weirdly, police state, even though it doesn't cover election fraud per se, it's a different topic. And it's a topic that's not banned. Fox News does cover the topic. But I think for some weird reason, they decided we won't mention the new movie either. So look at the, the obstacles on which our side uh, labors to get our message out are enormous. And as I say, they're coming in the, my, my sort of disappointment is not even with the other side. I mean, I recognize they're acting in a purposeful way, but the the degree of non-assistance that you get from your own side is what really gives you pause because you think, wow, uh, I mean, I'm I'm supposed to be on the front line of a battlefield and, you know, and I'm actually getting no reinforcements from my own team. Right. You can't preach to the choir when the choir doesn't even show up to, to come sing with you. Um, and they did have to settle at Fox with Dominion, which may or may not have cost Tucker his job. He was the number one rated. So obviously they were petrified so much that they were willing to to uh, uh, bet the house, I suppose you could say. So. Okay, I've watched your show, I watched your movie, uh, the most recent one, and I've been losing some sleep lately, which I know it's geared towards it to, to do that, to shake people out of their slumber. Um, but even before I saw your movie, uh, we've had former FBI agent Stephen Friend on here. Um, he's been on my show three times, uh, most recently last week. Uh, we've had Kyle Serafin, too, who was a consultant on your movie as well. So Steve said something that freaked me out. He said, I'm going to quote him right from the show. If I wake up and look at the clock and it's 6.08 a.m., I know it's going to be a good day. He was implying that if the feds didn't raid his house at their favorite time of day, 6 a.m., like with Roger Stone and many more senior citizens praying at Planned Parenthood, you know, that's his America 2023. Terror, First Amendment and J6 defendant Stuart Parks at his home here in Columbia, Tennessee, who actually ran for Congress two years ago. He was perp walk with no shirt, no shoes and handcuffs by six armed agents on a misdemeanor charge. These agents take an oath also, but we saw what Kyle called Neil team six when they took a knee for black lives matter. How did media matters, BLM and progressives like that all full of Marxist communists take over the justice department? Well, they did it by traveling uh, through the path of the Democratic Party. I mean, they they took over progressive institutions and then they took over the key posts of the Democratic Party and then they used that power to intimidate uh, the media uh, and corporate America into submission. Corporate America was, I mean, it's really remarkable to see in, in police agencies of the government were never considered left-wing. Uh, certainly not the FBI. Uh, you would expect, I would expect it in the Reagan era, that the majority of people in the FBI would be conservative. They probably would be Republican oriented. So part of the kind of evil genius of the left has been to take over conservative institutions, including to some degree the military and, um, and corporate America. Corporate America was never monolithically left wing. Uh, and I don't think it still is. But I do think that uh, the left discovered that corporate CEOs are, at the bottom, very invertebrate. They're not invertebrate in making money decisions per se, but they're very invertebrate in doing anything that does not directly involve a money transaction. So if you come up to a CEO and you call him a racist, uh, he doesn't know what to do. Uh, and so he goes into a panic. 
uh, and you're able ultimately to dictate terms out of that. You can basically reduce them to a sniveling. You can get them to kiss your feet uh, to avoid the public accusation of racism. And the left realized this is a real form of power. And if we systematize the use of it, we will bring corporate America to its knees. Yeah, and I think if I'm not mistaken, uh, Robert Mueller and Comey both were technically Republicans appointed to their 10-year uh, FBI chief posts, but didn't act like it as they were turning over these these weapons of power, this weaponization of our, our chief investigative bureaucracy to the left. So you're right. Um, FBI agents in protective gear armed with machine guns raided January 6th defendant Stuart Park's home at 5.53 a.m. on June 3rd, 2021, because he walked in the Capitol for half an hour and was charged with misdemeanors. Sentenced to eight months by an Obama-appointed judge and DOJ prosecutors colluded to convict him. Uh, they did that to you too, huh? You weren't perp-walked, but you may have been the first the Obama administration described the film that you made at that time as, quote, an insidious attempt to dishonestly smear the president. Selectively prosecuted is what we would call that. And that the indictment was politically motivated retribution for the success of the film. Do you still feel that way? And uh, did you learn any lessons back then that you're applying to today to make sure it doesn't happen again? Well, I think that... Um... When my case occurred, I, I did not see it as a prelude or precursor to a police state. I certainly didn't see it as happening to, you know, Carter Page, Papadopoulos, uh, Michael Flynn or Trump, which it happened later. So there was a clear escalation and expansion of this kind of police state type of uh, selective prosecution and political crim uh, uh, criminal targeting. But... Um, I was determined when I when I went to the confinement center, this was part of my sentence, eight months overnight in a confinement center. I looked around at those people and some of them were, you know, uh, had served time for various hard crimes. But there were some white collar guys in there as well. But I looked around the place. There are about 120 people in my dorm where I slept every night on bunk beds. I was like, wow. You know, all these guys, their lives are sort of ruined. And by that, I mean that at the end of it, when they come out, you know, a mayor, a doctor, this guy, that guy, they're never going to get their life back. And I said, that's really how the other side wins with regard to my case. In other words, if I come out, I can't publish a book. Nobody invites me to speak. I can't make a movie. I'm sort of done. Then they win. On the other hand, if I come out and my career is bigger than it was before I went in, then I win. Uh, I don't care about the stupid confinement. The whole thing to me is a joke. But the key thing is not to allow them to achieve their objective. And interestingly, in the first case, which I think was my case, I did win. And by that, I mean, they couldn't get me. I got out. Uh, my career was bigger than it was before I got in. Uh, I got pardoned by the president, uh, Trump. Uh, he So he undid what Obama tried to do. Uh, and so the whole thing was kind of a failure. Now, it didn't stop the left from trying. And of course, I fully recognize that when they go after January 6th defendants, they're dealing with people who don't have the resources that I did to be able to hit back. When I went on Anderson Cooper's show, I remember after I was pardoned, he was like, well, Dinesh, you only got pardons because some very influential people like Ted Cruz and Donald Trump came to your defense. 
And I go, that's true. But the only reason they came to my defense is some equally influential people named Eric Holder and Barack Obama went after me in the first place. So it takes powerful people to undo the effects of what some other powerful people did in the first place. So they put me on the hook and then these guys got me off the hook. So there you go. Um, so hallelujah uh, to that. The only other similar case that I can think of is when they went after the guy with the uh, YouTube video for Benghazi um, because Hillary didn't like the fact that it wasn't the reason why we had a tragedy in Benghazi. So the two of you, and then like you said, that was the trajectory where they could take on an entire administration of an incoming president and spy on them and use the, all the new powers that they didn't have during your time. Now, Chuck Schumer famously said that they have six ways from Sunday of getting back at you. In your movie, you spent a great deal of time talking about Matthew Perna, a Pennsylvania man who pleaded guilty to four charges related to the Jan 6 Capitol riots. He killed himself at home. Is that the way number six? Well, um, it, it, is the, it is the mission, I believe, of the left to use the process, uh, the criminal justice system, to crush the spirit of conservatives. And so I won't say that they intended for him to do that, but it is the foreseeable consequence of what they are doing to many other people. And it may just well be that in his case, he, it pushed him over the edge. And you have some other guys who are just on this side of the cliff. They haven't gone off, but, but the cruelty, the attempt to break people's spirit, this is their goal. And I saw even in my own case, which is trivial compared to uh, some of the cases where people are facing, you know, long uh, prison terms and so on and conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government and all that stuff. Uh, even in my case, I realized that if the Obama prosecutors could have put me in prison for 10 years for a campaign finance donation of $20,000 of my own money to a college friend of mine who was running for office, if they could have done that, they could have locked me up for 10 years, they would have done it. And so... I realized then it was a very kind of eye-opening moment for me that I, a lot of my earlier views of American politics were sort of naive. And I think many Republicans are still living in that kind of bovine slumber where they, because I think until some of this stuff happens to you, it's very difficult for you to even believe it happens at all. You're like, oh, you know, I'm not Donald Trump, Dinesh, and I didn't go inside the Capitol and you know, I pay my taxes, so I'm never going to see the FBI helicopter hovering over my lawn or a battering ram coming through my door. And um, and this is how it is this kind of apathy, uh, indifference and stupidity. Uh, that's how you get police states. Yeah. So movies have an A story and a B story. Most people it kind of goes over their head, the B story. But the A story is the what they come out and say, oh, it was about this, that or the other thing. Your A is the title, police state, but the B is the deep state actors that were willing to follow orders and go along with all this. Um, in the character played by Nick Searcy from Justified, the FBI field chief, I believe is what he was doing in that show. What did you learn? And do you think any politician around today would ever move to actually clean that deep state out? Well, I think that... Um... So far, you know, the signs are, are a little disappointing. And by that, I mean, recently, some 70 Republicans voted to give more money, in fact, $300 million or so to the FBI to build a new headquarters in Washington, D.C. Now, to me, this behavior borders on insanity. 
You've got the FBI targeting Republicans, targeting conservatives, targeting the MAGA Make America Great Again movement. You're the target of the FBI and you're giving them money to do what? Target you more? Uh, so when you see people act in this kind of idiotic way, dangerous way, uh, you feel, and I think many Republicans feel this way, you feel like our own leaders who are in a position to defend <laughs> us and should be defending us and are pledged to defend us, and we elected them for that purpose, and they even have the power to do it, won't do it. So this is, I think, akin to the, to the feeling of a soldier who goes, they're telling me to charge up a hill, but if I get wounded and I'm on the battlefield, I need to know in advance that these guys will walk right off and not even bother to try to take me with them. So you can just imagine the feeling of dismay. Um, and I've seen it, you know, in the eyes of people like Jerry Perna, who's the aunt of Matt Perna, interviewed in the film. Just this sense that so much is asked of us uh, by a party and by a team that delivers so little. Yeah, it reminds me quite a bit of either the Afghanistan withdrawal or even Benghazi again, because we always thought up until those moments that the government, the military, America had our backs home and abroad. And now it seems like they actually put a target on us. Um, and movies are a great way to get the message out, obviously, especially to young people in a country. You know, you think back to Birth of a Nation or Glory, shows like Roots, pretty much anything done by Norman Lair had power to change culture. Like Andrew Beitbart said, politics is downstream from culture, but I don't believe that anymore. I think the culture took over DC and politics mostly because of social media. So film schools, young actors are role, model, role models, like it or not. Um, how have your pro-American, pro-liberty films done with young demographics? A little hard to say. Uh, I, in fact, I don't really know. And I say that only because we release our films in the theaters. So I have some sense from the theaters of what our theatrical demographic is. And that tends to be older uh, people. But I think it's also because older people like to they're not into streaming, you know, they, they like to go to the theater to see a movie. They also like to see the movie with other like-minded people. Our streaming audience, I have much less of a sense of who they are. These are people who stream the movie to any device, including a big screen TV. We, we also sell a, a remarkable number of DVDs. And to me, that suggests an older audience. So I think we have a mixed audience, but, um, you know, and I used to do a lot of speaking on the campus. So I had a much a clearer sense of how young people are thinking these days. But after COVID, um, the campuses have sort of gone into a little bit of a different phase. And I've done very little campus speaking post COVID. Uh, and so I don't actually know what the campuses are like at this moment. Okay. Uh, Dan Bongino was also in your movie, uh, I think a producer as well. He and Tucker, Emerald Robinson, my reporter at home, Jonathan Cho. <laughs> They've all been bounced out of mainstream media like Fox and Newsmax, mostly because they weren't controllable. They, they said what they wanted to say. You know, there's some nuances behind the scenes we don't know, but let's just go with that. CNN and Fox fired Tucker. Um, are you ever invited to distribute the movie in any mainstream channels? I know the studios probably aren't too happy with you because you do it yourself, but do you get any Hollywood muscle behind you and what you're trying to, to push out there? Well, yeah, I mean, yes, I would say that um, we we have good relationships with all the theaters. 
And whether we release a movie just for normal theatrical re release, sometimes we choose to do buyouts. We buy out theaters around the country, hundreds of them. And um, uh, sometimes we just release a movie in the theater the normal way. Uh, either way, we have not had problems with the theaters. And that's very significant because that's the biggest way you distribute a movie. Where we have had problems, for example, police state, Amazon and Walmart won't sell our DVDs. Now, this is like crazy because they sell tons of products. There's nothing about our films that is, you know, makes them, you know, somehow uh, unsellable as merchandise. It is purely the fact that there is an ideological selection committee at these places and they are like, we don't have to sell anything we don't have to sell. So we're just going to say, no, we're not going to say why. We're not going to give you a reason. We're not claiming that there's anything wrong with your movie. We just do not wish to sell it. And that's going to severely restrict our distribution. Now we find other ways to sell our DVDs, uh, but we do encounter a fair amount of obstacles. Uh, happily, the theaters themselves are not one of them. Hmm, that's good to know, because I know AMC is owned by China, so there's always a potential they could change their mind. But for now, that's fantastic. How about the studio system? Disney, Warner, Lionsgate, Angel Studios trying to carve out the Christian uh, the churches. Are you in demand by, by studios with big money? I've had pretty good relationships with both Universal and Lionsgate over the years. Um, but I have pulled our business uh, into a much more independent mode for various complicated reasons. Uh, I don't know what the kind of governance structure is today. I do know that once Trump came on the scene, even some of the studios that were on very friendly terms with me, and partly just because my earlier movies just did so well, uh, became much more skittish, but the skittishness was not about me. It actually was all ab about Trump. The, the the level of vitriol and venom toward Trump sort of washed over onto uh, my movie project. So because I know that there are added risks now dealing with studios, I try to do my best not to have anything to do with them. Smart. And how, do you been how have you been able to navigate the movie distribution business when all the avenues are kind of blocked to truth tellers like you? Um, obviously, Amazon Prime is a huge distributor of people's content, uh, especially second run after it's already been in the theaters. What have you figured out to, to, to do it? How, how have you done it? We, we might be able to uh, distribute Police State on Apple iTunes and Amazon Prime. And we're actually looking at those possibilities right now. I don't want to say that we are having any obstacles because we haven't had any yet. Um, now, but not to say that we couldn't, but I've had earlier movies distributed all those different ways. Uh, now, I will say Netflix is unremittingly hostile, very ideological. In one case, they bought one of my movies as part of a package of movies. And once they discovered it was my film, even though they had paid a considerable amount of money, something like a million dollars for the Netflix rights to the movie, they never showed the movie. It's like they discovered that it was content that was, you know, right of center or whatever. And they decided, you know, we don't care if we paid a million dollars, we'll just lose the million dollars. We're just not going to show this film. And of course, when that happens, I can't show it anywhere else because Netflix has bought the rights to it, at least for streaming. So we've had those kinds of encounters, which really shows you the, I mean, talking about the, the left's iron control over some of these institutions, it's quite horrifying. And it's quite horrifying to see the kind of entrenched intolerance that you have in a place like Netflix, because you think their attitude would be, hey, listen, you know, we've got 99 
left-wing movies. Who cares if we show Dinesh's movie? There's going to be some people who want to see it. Nobody's forced to see it. So that kind of liberal in the old sense attitude is become very rare on the left today. Wow. Yeah, we had John Schneider on here and he has his own streaming service. And um, I know I watched your movie on Rumble. So things that didn't even exist for five, six years ago uh, are also alternative ways to get that out there. And I'm sure if he cuts the middleman out completely, he's making a lot more than it would if it was just sitting there waiting for a $2 rental on Amazon. But uh, we'll see how this goes for you. Uh, maybe they'll allow it and you'll have huge distribution. I hope so. Um, and you don't just make a movie a year, as I said earlier, uh, which would exhaust most mere mortals. Uh, what else are you doing day to day? Well, I do a daily podcast. It's just the Dinesh D'Souza podcast. I do it in audio on Apple, Google, and Spotify. I also do it in video on YouTube and Rumble both. Uh, I have been writing books, although I, ha I didn't do a book to go with the Police State movie. I should mention, by the way, that policestatefilm.net is the website. You can stream the movie on multiple platforms right off of that website. Uh, you can also buy DVDs and good good way to stock up for Christmas uh, on the DVD. So policestatefilm.net is how you get the latest film. So yeah, I do the, I do the podcast. I do the books. I do the movies. Mm -hmm. No speaking engagements, nothing anyone can go see. No, I mean, too. I do that. I do that yeah. as well. Okay. Um, and I know when things get into the courts, you have to watch what you say first amendment again, but 2000 mules got a defamation lawsuit against it and true the vote, uh, also, uh, by one, just one of the 2000 mules said something negative, uh, can you tell us anything about that at all? Well, the reason I, I can't get into it is just precisely because when these topics are in litigation, uh, even though the facts of the case may be clear, there may be all kinds of things to be said about it, uh, your lawyer basically tells you, listen, don't discuss the facts of the case. Um, I, I'm obviously happy to talk about 2000 Mules and the validity of the movie and the validity of the the techniques of geo tracking and video surveillance that we used in the movie. I just don't want to discuss the specific case for the obvious reason. Yeah. And, you know, with 1,999 not saying you said anything wrong, I think the odds are probably that you're okay on this case, but we'll wait and see. And I wish you luck on that. So the big question of this movie is Is America becoming a police state? Is it? Yes. I would say we're not a full fledged police state. Obviously, if we were, I couldn't make a movie called Police State, but we have moved pretty far down that road on a scale of one to 10. I would say we are probably at a six, somewhere in nice. that range. Uh, and, and all of this in, has happened with such breathtaking rapidity that if it continues at this pace, it will not be that long before we're basically North Korea. I mean, some people will immediately recoil and deny, really? Yeah, really. Uh, because uh, if you go down, even take the Bill of Rights as a kind of um, uh, partial enumeration of our basic rights, if you go down that Bill of Rights, you find that none of our basic rights today, you or I or anyone could with a straight face say, uh, none of our basic rights is completely secure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so 2020 Trump Card was co-written and co-directed with Debbie D'Souza, formerly uh, Deborah Fancher, I think is how you say it. That's your wife. Yeah. Uh, how much better is your work when you work with her? I mean, it's great. We were, were a team in all kinds of ways. And we have found, I mean, Debbie's very creative. She's also a musician. She has very good visual um, judgment. 
And so she just happened to sort of marry into a movie business where she happens to be really good and have a lot to contribute. That's not always the case. And sometimes, you know, people, husbands and wives work on different projects. But in our case, we found that we can collaborate very well and we we bring uh, we both bring a similar creativity, but we also bring different kind of ingredients to to the movies that we work on. And and I have a business partner, Bruce Schooley, and he has his own strength. So we've got a really good team and I'm very happy to be working closely with them. That's beautiful. Okay. Well, Mr. D'Souza, thank you for your time. We really appreciate everything you do for everyone else out there on your day-to-day. -day. Uh, we're at the end here. So tell our listeners where they can go to find out more about you and if you have social media, where they can go. You can follow me on X, uh, formerly Twitter, at, at Dinesh D'Souza, just my name. I'm also on all the other platforms. Um, and the movie, Police State, you can see at policestatefilm.net. So not .com, but policestatefilm.net both for streaming it's now in streaming and dvd so um this is a good place to watch it in streaming or to pick up some dvds and great way to share the message because if you drop those dvds into somebody's christmas stocking they'll they'll be thankful absolutely all right well thanks again for coming on with us and good luck thanks always a pleasure With Columbia, Tennessee-based EnergizeHealth.com, you lose fat fast, simply and naturally, without restrictive exercise or cardboard dry, tasteless food. Revolutionize your health with this proprietary 88-day science from John and Chelsea Jubilee. People report getting off medications and reversing ailments. Energy, mental clarity, and alertness go through the roof, look and feel many years younger and oftentimes unrecognizable. I know. I'm an alumnus and lost 70 pounds of fat with John and Chelsea and wouldn't have energy to do three shows a week without it. Hit the link in show notes for your free consultation and discount. Money back guarantee so you have nothing to lose but unhealthy fat. EnergizedHealth.com I don't Welcome to the Steve and Steve segment of our show, where we cover what we just heard. Producer Steve, what do you think of our special guest, Dinesh D'Souza? Wow, I wish I had, uh, well, anyway. Um, what a man. He's accomplished a lot in a short time. He found his niche. He uh, partnered up with the Reagan administration, and he said, this is my group I'm going to stay with, the conservative um, Republican Party, and he's pretty much stayed there the whole way. I think from the point of time when he launched into politics in the 80s, like me, um, the Republican Party has drifted so far to the left, and the left party has, has just gone off the deep end. And between the two, I mean, the neocons. Look, Steve, we had the neocons that caused... The Patriot Act should never have been put through. That that was like the death nail. That was like the the nail in the coffin. Anybody understands what happened on when the Patriot Act went through? Um, it was. But Steve, what a great interview. We could go on and on about that. But uh, thanks for bringing these great, interesting people who are out there making a difference. Yeah, in... do my best. Do my best. Get get what yep. you pay for, folks. But uh, we did get a Rumble comment to read. Thank you for doing it. Uh, you write me, and I read it. Uh, this one from Fred Stallone. Hmm, maybe we'll see nice show brother 
It's great to see John laugh and have a smile on his face after the trial he's endured. That's about episode 143 with John Schneider on Halloween. Thanks, Fred. It was sad his wife and longtime collaborator died this year. He seemed lonely, but I was happy to have made him laugh, and he said he had fun. So I'm going to take that to the bank. That is a win. Um, Some news. New York City Chief of Student Enrollment ousted in wake of DOE misconduct probe. Huh. Let's look into this. The City Department of Education's Chief Enrollment Officer has been removed from her job eight months after a hushed-up investigation substantiated misconduct charges against her, the Post has learned. Sarah Kleinhandler failed to supervise a top deputy, Amanda Lurie, who committed time theft and fraud. Time theft and fraud. Can you steal time? I guess you can. The DOE's Office of Special Investigations charged March 13th in an internal report After six years overseeing the placement of students in New York City public schools, Kleinhandler, quote, will be moving on to a position as an executive director within our division where she will work or virtual learning and other projects. Hmm, Not fired for stealing time. Move to another seat to steal more time. First, Deputy Chancellor Daniel Weisberg, her direct supervisor, said in an email to DOE staffers Thursday. The first part, not the second part, about time theft. The move comes after Weisberg raised Kleinhandler's salary from $204,106 to $220,000 last December as OSI completed its probe. He then sent on the report for month, sat on the report for months until the investigator who conducted the probe, Jonathan May, described his findings in the post. May said he feared a cover-up. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe there's another firing in the offing. Uh, Quote, this is a public relations maneuver, a DOE source who is close to the matter called Klein Handler's ouster, which is really just shuffling the deck. How is it a demotion when this senior bureaucrat is still making a bloated salary? Good question. Next story. California judge recommends suspension of community college DEI rules. Huh. California? Let's look into this. California judge has recommended suspension of the enforcement of rules instituted by the California Community College System intended to ensure faculty and staff members uphold diversity, equity, and inclusion values, whatever those are. The rules, which took effect in the spring, established criteria for the evolution of employees regarding their, quote, demonstrated or progress toward proficiency in diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, competencies that enable work with diverse communities, I guess like college kids, according to a May memo from system leaders. The ruling was in response to a lawsuit against Bakersfield College and Kern Community College district leaders filed by Damon Johnson, a history professor at the college, His suit alleged that he and other professors were penalized for espousing conservative views under the system's mandate and discouraged from exercising their free speech rights. The lawsuit claimed the rules were unconstitutional, yes, and called for them to be suspended. How nice. You think they were? They were not. A magistrate judge for the U.S. District Court for the Eastern District of California concluded that system leaders aim of promoting diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in California's system of community colleges undoubtedly is important. However, 
Johnson has shown a likelihood of success on the merits that the regulatory scheme defendants have put in place to advance these interests is contrary to the First Amendment's guarantee of freedom of speech in the academic arena. Some free speech advocates celebrated the decision. Well, that, that's a that's a win, is it, Steve? We one of our guys who just was speaking his conservative views, or he he won. I mean, he could speak his views. Yep, that's good. Yep. That's good. And that's a win in college in California at one little tiny college in a big big state. So we'll yep. see if it has some domino effects, and we get that into the University of California system. God forbid. <laughs> Next story: Judge who approves FBI Mar-a-Lago search represented clients linked to Jeffrey Epstein. Ooh. This would be a demonetized show if we were on YouTube. Bruce Reinhardt worked as a federal prosecutor until January 2008, when a day later he became a defense attorney representing employees of Epstein. Hmm. The federal magistrate, judge, who signed off on the warrant that allowed federal agents to search former President Donald Trump's Florida residence, once drew scrutiny for switching from his job as a federal prosecutor to working as a defense attorney on behalf of individuals connected to convicted sex offender Jeffrey Epstein. Huh, weird. The judge, known for his meticulous nature, is also well-respected within the Palm Beach legal community and had once worked in the Justice Department's public integrity section. Uh-huh. He had contributed to both Democrats and Republican candidates, so that's good. Trump lawyer Christina Bob told Politico that Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhart signed off on the warrant and that agents removed about a dozen boxes of materials from the property. Bob was said to be present at the time the FBI conducted the search of Mar-a-Lago in Palm Beach. Totally nonpartisan. Reinhart's decision to grant the FBI warrant request to search Trump's resort has sparked a firestorm among Republicans who have decried what they call the weaponization of the Department of Justice, the weaponization of every department in the United States government. Yes, but yes. one local prosecutor described Reinhardt, who has been a magistrate judge since 2018, as well-respected within the Palm Beach community, legal community, Palm Beach County legal community. Reinhardt is married to Circuit Judge Carolyn Bell, a former federal prosecutor who was appointed to the bench by then Governor Rick Scott, a Republican who is now a senator. Sounds good. Quote, he's a former prosecutor and a defense attorney, and he's also known for being meticulous, said Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Arnberg. A Democrat was a Democrat was elected state attorney who was elected state attorney, but who also once worked for Republican Attorney General Pam Bondi. Very incestuous. He's not going to make a snap judgment, Arnberg added. That's a judgment. Reinhardt could not be reached for comment. Magistrate judges are not appointed by the president, but instead are appointed by district judges. Their, judge, their duties can include dealing with bond hearings, handling technical issues in civil cases, and signing off on whether to authorize a search warrant. Ooh. Reinhardt, who earned his law degree from the University of Pennsylvania and also graduated from Princeton, uh-oh, worked for the Treasury Department, the Public Integrity Section of the U.S. Department of Justice, and spent more than 11 years as an assistant United States attorney. During that time, he handled more than 100 grand jury investigations, including cases involving health care fraud, keep that in mind, public corruption, and tax fraud, according to a biography of Reinhardt posted by the private law firm where he worked for about six years. His official bio on the U.S. District Court Southern District of Florida site appeared to be deactivated. Huh. 
He worked as a federal prosecutor until January 1, 2008, when a day later he became a defense attorney representing employees of Epstein, according to a 2018 story by the Miami Herald. According to the Herald, the employees included pilots for Epstein, his schedule, and a woman who had been described by some of Epstein's victim as his sex slave. Oh, how nice. Epstein committed suicide in a Manhattan federal jail in 2019 while awaiting trial for sex trafficking, allegedly. The Herald also reported that in 2011, Reinhardt was named in a lawsuit where he was accused of violating Justice Department policies by representing the employees. Reinhardt denied the allegations and said he did not participate in Epstein's criminal case and did not learn any confidential information while working as a prosecutor. Okay. Law 360 reported in June that Reinhardt agreed to a request by Google that the tech giant be awarded attorney's fees after the tech company prevailed in a lawsuit that alleged Google had blacklisted a website because the site was owned by conservatives. No bias. Reinhardt did not rule in the underlying lawsuit, but instead adjudicated a dispute over legal fees. Law 360 reported Reinhardt did decrease the fee amount from Google wanted from more than 200,000 to slightly more than 145,000. Federal campaign finance records show that Reinhardt in 2008 donated 1,000 to President Barack Obama's presidential campaign and 1,000 to the Obama Victory Fund, a joint fundraising committee. He had also donated $500 to former Florida Republican Jeb Bush in 2016 when he was running for president. State records show that over several election cycles, Reinhardt donated $4,550 to a handful of candidates, including Aaron Byrne, as well as candidates running for judge, state attorney, public defender, and a Democrat who ran for the Florida House. <laughs> that is how you get justice in Florida. Last story, Fairfax County Public Schools suspend students for allegedly blowing whistle on swastika flag. What? Suspend students for allegedly blowing whistle on swastika this according to the Fairfax County Times. Last week, Jewish students at Langley High School were stunned to see the image of a U.S. flag that a classmate had drawn in room 1406 during a meeting of the Muslim Students Association, replacing the stars on the flag with swastikas and the message Free Palestine. There is no Palestine, and if there was, it is free. In between squibbles to stripes, the image circulated quickly at school as pro-Palestine students staged a walkout on Friday, better than studying, carrying another sign with swastikas on it and chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, a call to action that Jews, Jewish groups have decried as an anti-Semitic war cry to destroy the state of Israel. Call to action, remove all humans from the river to the sea, genocide. Does the Jews live there? Makes sense to me. There are Christians there too, by the way. Now, Jewish students and parents are shocked to learn that Langley administrators this week suspended not only the Muslim student who drew the swastikas on the U.S. flag, but also an Asian-American classmate whom school officials accused of leaking the photo to the public. Local Jewish community members and their allies plan a rally at Fairfax County Public Schools' Gatehouse headquarters, which they have renamed Hate House to protest the retaliation against the Asian-American teen and the lack of school district action on anti-Jewish hate. Man, I can do a whole thing on Seattle, and I will. The controversy over swastikas at one of America's top high schools just down the road from CIA headquarters brings a contentious global battle over Israel and Palestine from college campuses and the streets into the America's K-12 school system. For several years, parents have expressed their concerns that administrators at Fairfax County's public schools are ignoring anti-Semitism, said Rebecca Scalis, 
co-founder of the Public United Against Antisemitism. Fairfax County Public Schools has emboldened students to become even more aggressive in their open anti-Semitism, where they explicitly express support for Hamas and include swastikas in their signage. Jewish students have been threatened at these walkouts, and yet FCPS is falsely claiming to the community that they are peaceful and orderly. When Jewish students uh, and their allies protest against anti-Semitism, they have their own right to free speech and rights outlined in the student rights and responsibilities violated. Time for one more? Well, if you want to, it's your show, Steve. We're fine. That's right. That is. First two, January 6th, appeals reach Supreme Court. Court to decide whether to accept appeals in two key cases that could impact thousands of other Jan 6 cases. The U.S. Supreme Court has set a conference for December 1st, Friday, on which to accept key, on whether to accept two key January 6th case appeals, one involving a federal agent who carried his firearm on the U.S. Capitol and the other on the Department of Justice's controversial use of evidence tampering law to prosecute Jan 6 defendants for felony obstruction of Congress. Edward Jacob Lang, uh, FBI court document, if either of both of the petitions are accepted, it will be the first time a Jan 6 related case is reviewed by the Supreme Court. On November 14th, the court listed both cases as distributed for conference on December 1st. Defense attorney Marina Medvin, who is involved in both cases, said it should be clear by December 4th if the court will issue orders, accept or reject the petition for review, or hold the cases over for another conference. The first case, Edward Jacob Lang, petitioner versus United States, could impact hundreds of defendants accused of the most frequently charged Jan 6 felony corruptly obstructing an official proceeding which carried a potential 20-year prison term has been charged in 317 cases according to the latest doj tally stay tuned for my quote of this week Hi, I'm Steve Friend, Senior Fellow at the Center for Renewing America and former FBI agent and whistleblower, and you are listening to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. Welcome to my quotes for the day, but before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View podcast. Just go to Rumble or Spotify or iTunes, search for Mill Creek View and hit the subscribe button and follow us. Be sure to check out our new business show, the CEO special. There's a new one coming out this week where I interview great business folks doing good business, and I really hope you like it. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night <laughs> instead of armies by day, it is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned. No rumor is printed. No secret is revealed. It conducts the Cold War, in short, with a wartime discipline no no democracy would ever hope or wish to match. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed and no republic can survive. That is why the 
Athenian lawmaker Solon decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. John Fitzgerald Kennedy assassinated November 22, 1963, 60 years ago last week. I'm sorry we didn't um, do that. Uh, I'm sorry we did that, basically. Uh, some say because he wanted peace in our time and to follow Eisenhower's warning of the military-industrial complex and power enough to actually do it, they may have gotten rid of him. What might have been. That's it for this episode. Thank you, Dinesh D'Souza, for being the living embodiment of the God-given blessing of free speech. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of mcview.us. Let's go out with Dinesh D'Souza's wife, Debbie D'Souza, and her America the Beautiful because it is beautiful. Only a person that loves this country can sing it like this. And we are still free for now. If you don't get goosebumps, call 911. You may be dead. Peace in our time and glory to God.
Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.